Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. On this episode, we're going to turn things over to Moya Andrews, host of WFIU's Focus on Flowers, for two conversations with some important stewards of the land here in south-central Indiana. A little later in the program, Moya is going to speak with Anthony Jocelyn, who revives and maintains the historic gardens of the T.C. Steele State Historic Site. But first, Moya sits down with her good friend Terry Claypax, Vice President Emeritus of Indiana University. He served the university for 43 years, and for most of that time, he was focused on campus master planning, new building construction, real estate acquisition, and campus maintenance and beautification. Claypax has been credited with 661 major building projects. That's more than half of the structures found on IU's eight campuses. Terry Claypax recently told the story of the IU campus in Bloomington in a new book. And Terry begins their conversation by telling Moya how he arrived at this book's subtitle, America's Legacy Campus. I truly believe that Indiana University stands alone among America's colleges and universities in terms of honoring its very early legacy and planning principles. Uh, There are many reasons for that. Some are serendipitous. Some are carefully planned and thought through. But from the very beginning, from our move out to this location, which occurred in 1884, we have essentially been following one master plan. Now, that plan has been updated several times from the beginning. And as as you know, Moya, the first two buildings on this campus were Wiley Hall and Owen Hall, which were constructed of brick. That was brick that was used and left over from the old campus fires down in Seminary Square, brought out to the new campus location and reused to save expenses. But from that moment forward, this campus has had a specific theme that has been architecturally driven, but also landscape driven and building material driven. And we've kept true to that all the way through. I know of no other American university that's done that. And there are plenty of beautiful campuses in this country that started off in one direction and somewhere along the way took a different turn and no longer have that common core uh, mm, about mm. them. And, and they're not cohesive. And the they're not cohesive. Campuses. And we were able to do that. Now, one of the reasons we've been able to do that and we're able to do that is because we had this wonderful run of leadership at Indiana University. I, I can't think of another university in the United States where two presidents served continuously for a period of 60 years. But that's what we had here, mm-hmm. William O'Brien from 1902 to 1938, and Herman Wells from 1938 to 1962. 60 years. And people forget that Herman was a protege of William O'Brien's, mm. was a dean on his staff, and uh, saw things very much in the same way that 
Brian did. And so when Maxwell Hall came along, which was the third major building on the campus, it was constructed of limestone. Limestone was obviously a, a fairly new building material. It had been a foundation material up to that point. But with the quarries here in Monroe County and Lawrence County and this narrow band of Salem limestone that runs from basically Salem, Indiana, up to Steinsville, Indiana, a a width of no more than three or four miles wide in many locations. Mm -hmm. Here we are sitting right in the middle of it. And uh, what a wonderful bit of good luck that was for yeah, A wonderful resource. And it was good, too, that the uh, people in charge had the sense to use it and didn't think because it was homegrown that it wouldn't be quite as good as something else. I mean, it, a lot of people don't use things that are locally available. For, they want to have something more exotic. Yes, and uh, but Brian made a commitment to limestone. And his first master planner, a man named George Kessler, basically um, memorialized that commitment in his first master plan for the IU Bloomington mm. campus. And we've been following it pretty much since. Now, not every building, as you know, has been constructed of limestone. The art museum, uh, the Eskenazi Art Museum, is an obvious exception. Uh, a recreational sports building is one. The athletic facilities are exceptions. But there's a common look to it. It's, That's right. It's, the colors. The color mm -hmm. is and the theme and um, the scale of the buildings, the fact that we've for the most part, have fit our buildings into the landscape. A strong notion that Frank Lloyd Wright first made popular about it, that we adopt to the land around mm. us rather than vice versa. And that's what we've done here in Bloomington. And, you know, when you think about the state of Indiana, the northern two-thirds are very flat, agricultural. But the lower third, uh, below the terminal moraine of the last great Wisconsin mm -hmm. glacier that passed through uh, 10,000 years ago, uh, has given us a uh, a beautiful woodland, rolling uh, an site for our campus. An interesting space. To interesting. start with, it was an interesting space. It was an interesting space, mm -hmm. and we've taken advantage of that. And so yes. that's why I, I think we have been true to our legacy. Well, I am in awe of the fact that our predecessors were so far-sighted. I am too. And there were no egos involved. It was all what's good for the university, what's good for the campus, what's going to wear well in the long term. You suggest that William Lowe O'Brien was exceptionally gifted. He was. And you think about William Lowe O'Brien. He was a, a native of Monroe County. He hadn't traveled extensively. Uh, he was uh, very, very bright in his discipline. But uh, he seemed to just have good judgment and good taste, mm. and he had a way about him of getting things done. I think he's greatly underplayed in the history of Indiana University. That's interesting. And his wife, too, appears to have been quite a interesting person in her own right. Yes. Uh, and you know, of course, that he adopted her middle name. Her, her last name was Lowe. She was oh, Charlotte Lowe. I didn't know that. Is, that. is that in the book? Uh, yes. Well, I must have missed that part. <laughs> and, uh, and so when they married, instead of um, 
she took his last name, but he also took her last name. That is so very he was a man way ahead of his time. Very ahead of his time, and I do love the photograph in the book of the both of them with all of the undergraduates holding the axes. <laughs> I think that is a wonderful story. Can you tell us how that happened to come about? Well, I, it's a delightful story. Uh, when uh, the university decided to move forward with a field house to attach to the men's gym that was built in uh, very early on in the, in the Bryan administration, they wanted to move east from the men's gym. And, of course, that was an, an apple orchard at that time, and there were hundreds of, of trees there. And so the, there was a very practical problem. How do we remove these trees? And uh, I can't imagine this happening today, but then they issued axes to all of the male students on the <laughs> IU Bloomington campus, and they spent a wild weekend um, wielding those axes and chopping down every single apple tree out on the site of what is now Wildermuth Fieldhouse. And the co-eds came out on both Saturday and Sunday and brought lunch and dinner for the male students. So, oh, that's uh, a wonderful story. Uh, and I know in the photograph, Mrs. Bryan is standing there, and so is the president. Yep, it was a they, whoop activity. They were actively engaged. Well, that's wonderful. And maybe that's something, too, that has come across the years, that there has been a lot of engagement on the part of many people with the campus, not only with the master plan, but also with people giving trees in memory of their friends or family members. And Hilltop Garden has been a children's garden that has interested people's children in gardening. So there seems to be that participatory, collaborative feeling, not only about the university, but about the actual landscape. No, that's true. But you know, Moya, there was, um, for a long time, we did not actively care for gardens on the IU Bloomington campus. Um, when Herman Wells was president, he had on retainer a man named Fritz Loonston from Indianapolis. And Fritz was a um, native of Holland and came to this country to practice landscape design and horticulture. And gained quite a reputation in the city of Indianapolis. And Herman liked his work and hired him to be our consultant on the Bloomington campus. But Fritz, uh, and I worked with Fritz for quite some time, Fritz believed that the natural campus, the natural woodland campus that was IU then, was enough. And that the faculty would object if we started planting in a formal way flower gardens around that required a great deal of care and maintenance and expense because faculty would want those resources going in other directions. And so for a long time, we didn't do that. And finally, when Fritz retired, John Ryan was president then. And, and, and of course, his wife was a gardener. And I don't think we should ever underestimate the influence that wives who are gardeners have. And Pat was very influential, very wasn't influential. she? Very uh, influential, yes. And John's instructions to me were to begin to think about flowers on the campus and color. And so uh, we started very slowly. And I remember, of course, Herman was still chancellor then, no longer president, of course. And he would ask me about it. He would say, I see you're planting flowers here or there. He said, is that a good idea? And I would say... 
Well, I think it is. I think we can do it. And you know, Moya, I have never had a single phone call, never had a single phone call from a faculty member or a letter or, or, or an objection in any way saying you know, we shouldn't be spending money on those sorts of things. No, I think our faculty really understand the importance of the beauty on the campus in attracting good colleagues and, in, of course, in attracting good students. And I think they understand the importance of the ambience in the educational experience. And so I can understand why people may have thought that they would say the money should go into my salary. <laughs> but I don't think our faculty uh, think that way. I really think they value the beauty of the campus. I think you're absolutely right. Yes, everybody wants to be compensated fairly. But you also want to work in an environment that's encouraging and inspiring. And and Herman said those very words himself often about dreaming big dreams in these lush surroundings that we had, even without flower beds. And uh, and so uh, it just, to me, it just made it so much better. Today, there are 400 flower beds on the IU Bloomington as many as campus. Can you believe that? It, I'm happy that that's the case. Oh, I am too. And they're beautiful. And, and I... I don't want to toot my own horn here because I retired uh, in 2009, and I would say I believe the campus is more beautiful today than ever. I, th I think those in charge have just continued to make it better and better and better. And I agree, and I think Mia Williams, our landscape architect, is spectacular. I think she has done a wonderful job during her tenure as the person in charge of the campus landscape. Mia is a gift mm -hmm. to this university. Uh, she has a good eye and a good hand. And not only that, she's a pretty smart businesswoman. And so she can do the art and the science both. It's a good combination. Uh, and it's a great combination. And the uh, strategy about placing the flower beds in important places so that they're near entrances, high traffic areas, they distract from eyesores. Tell us a little bit about the um, idea of how the beds are placed for various reasons. Well, I think that some of it is so intuitive. You can just see where we need to have mm. flower beds. And and I know, Moya, you are a wonderful gardener, and you know the difference between the kind of flowers you can plant in shade beds and in sun beds. And we have an abundance of both on the campus. And so you'll see a, a lot of hostas that are used in those shady areas. A lot of other mums, uh, impatience. The fall is so yeah, spectacular yeah. with all of the mums in bloom. And the baskets are just mm. uh, spectacular, uh, really, everywhere. And so I think that they have, they've been created in, certainly in public places around the Union Building, the main classroom buildings. The auditorium. The auditorium, the auditorium always looks oh, so inviting. Musical Arts Center. Mm. Athletics has certainly been a part of it as well. And so it's wherever people walk through the Arboretum, uh, which was a major decision that John Ryan deserves credit for. Uh, I mean, there was such a push to put parking in that area when the old football stadium came down. Mm. And, and it took some courage to reject that notion and say, no, this is going to be a, a green place on the campus. And John was very adamant about that. 
But you walk through there and you see the flower beds today and along the walks on either side of the arboretum. It's it's amazing, really, 400 beds. It really and, is. Uh, and, and doesn't the campus grow its own flowers? Yes. So it's inexpensive compared to what it would cost if you had to buy them Absolutely. All. Beginning in the early 1990s, and and this is where I give Mia Williams' predecessor a lot of credit. Uh, I was blessed to have a partnership with a man named Mike Crow, who was Purdue. I remember Mike. His father was a faculty His member in the school His father, Jim Crow, was a— was, Oh, no, Hyper. And Hyper. Hyper. And— uh, and Mike was a Purdue grad who uh, we hired in the summers uh, between his years up at Purdue as a Hort major. And he came back, and when he finished, he wanted to come here and have a career. And um, so he started at the very bottom, but he was a great partner, understood the vision that we wanted to create here on this campus. And he came up with this notion of greenhouses. And mm. we used the greenhouses out at Kenlawn for a while. You remember Kenlawn Nursery out yes. on Smith Road? But then we had a chance to purchase a couple of our own from a nursery that was going out of business, and we did. And today we have five greenhouses, and they function to get us started early and to create our own plantings rather than to have to buy them commercially. And they're up near Hilltop, aren't they? They are there, but they're also out off of the golf course. Uh, We don't talk about them very much because they tend to be uh, prone to vandalism on occasion. Oh, I see. But they're off of Headley Road, tucked in uh, near the golf course. And uh, we have a 28-acre uh, nursery out there, and uh, it's been very serviceable. Yes, and, and the uh, plants are all ready then to be plopped into the ground at the appropriate seasons. Exactly. Pansies first, and then I suppose things like petunias and geraniums and dragons, leaf yes. begonias, and then going into the fall, you've got your mums and certain grasses. Uh, and you'd be amazed at the number of plants that we are able to bring out on our own through our own resources. Uh, the numbers are staggering, really. We plant uh, 32,000 pansies every year and take out six to 7,000 mums a year on the campus. Uh, but that makes such an impact. In a space this size, you do have to have large numbers of plants. You do. I mean, remember, we're basically occupying... Our campus is 2,000 acres a uh, thousand acres on the east side of the bypass and a thousand acres on the west side of the bypass. So basically, we, the campus activity is the west side of the bypass. Mm. And uh, but you think about what does it take to really make a thousand acres look good? And it takes numbers like that, thousands of right. and plants. Plants have to be massed. You can't have one little straggly little <laughs> plant. You have to have a whole mass of them in a clump. You know when that you put better than anyone. Yes. And that's what the greenhouse workers know well. And they, overnight sometimes it appears that the whole campus has been painted with flowers. Anyway, tell me a little bit more about the stone walls, because I always credit you with having the vision to put those stone walls back, all along First Street, all those low-stacked stone walls. I love them. I always call them Terry's Walls. But tell us, they were original, weren't they? (laughs) If you read Hoagy Carmichael's autobiography, The Stardust Road, he talks about low stone walls along Third Street uh, from... Indiana to Jordan. And I would go out and 
look and there would be no stone walls. There were gates given by certain classes that would take you into Swain Hall or into Myers Hall or and they persisted, into Rawls. But there was no wall. But there were no walls connecting those gates. Mm. But uh, if you examine the area closely, you'd find a foundation. And so that they were there at one time. And if you drive through the countryside, certainly very much a part of what southern Indiana is all about, you would see that farmers would erect stone walls of limestone croppings, outcroppings would come up, they would use them, and yet they were had disappeared on the campus. And so I approached President Ryan and I said, you know, what do you think about starting to put these walls back in place? And he he was very much for it. And he said, uh, you know, we're limited in terms of funds that we have. We, In those days, we had no student fee for repair and renovation as we do now. We depended on the state for R&R money each year. And that was always given to the university in cash and was always the first thing that the state took away in a budget crisis mm, mm. because it was cash. Mm. And so... Often we would go two or four years without any R&R money. And President Ryan said to me, he said, at the end of each fiscal year, I will scrape together $150,000 for you to use in any way you choose. And if you want to use that to begin to replace those stone walls, please do. And he said, you may get some calls about it. Well, there's another example, Moya. I never received one negative phone call. I received several positive phone calls from Mm. faculty saying, gee, I love what's going on down there around the law school. It's historic. Yeah. So bit by bit, with each new project that would come along, we would include in the project an extension of the wall until we have what you see today. And President McRobbie has done a very good job continuing that program and has uh, actually taking it all the way around Woodlawn Field and along 10th Street, and it looks very, very nice. It really does. And it's what Southern Indiana is all about. Yes, it's the right thing for this part of the country. Yes. Of course, talking about President McGrubbie, he is a gardener, and so is his wife. Yes. You can't beat people who are gardeners. No. They have a sense of the aesthetic <laughs> that's appropriate for the campus. They do. And, and we're fortunate to have them. I agree. Well, we've talked about the stone walls, but... You must need a lot of staff, or the campus must need a lot of staff, not only to build walls and garden beds, but to maintain them. The maintenance must be a huge problem for a campus like this. It's a problem. We've been very fortunate that we've been funded fairly well. We have uh, received gift funds to help support it. There is a flower and bulb fund at the IU Foundation that people contribute to. And we have done a good job of mechanizing the campus crew. And so Mm -hmm. actually the number of people working there is probably a little smaller than it was 25 years ago, but they have better equipment. And of course we use student help in the the summer that's seasonal. Mm -hmm. And so that's always good too. And that cuts two ways because students then have some income that uh, is very helpful. And they learn some good skills, too, they, that hopefully and, they will use in their And futures. take those values back into their communities when they leave Indiana University. Yes. So it's a very good plan to have the student help. It is. And the Jordan River. 
Yes. Tell us a little bit about the Jordan River and what that's meant to the campus over the years and what it's going to mean in the future. I think it's going to play uh, even a stronger mm-hmm. role because I, there are plans uh, coming along very rapidly to uh, protect and enhance the Jordan River. But it's always been a, you know, a water feature. It just provides a wonderful contrast to everything that surrounds it. If it's a formal water feature like we have in front of the music, music recital hall, oh, the recital hall, hall yes. that is the, it just gives a, a pleasant relief to, I mean, limestone is a very hard material. If in large quantity, like Ballantyne Hall, it can be uh, somewhat forbidding almost, forbidding almost mm. uh, brutal uh, mm. the, in a way. But water will soften that. And so that's what the Jordan River has done for Indiana University. And I love the way, again, going back to Hoagy Carmichael's description of the Jordan River, barely a creek in August, but a rushing river of consequence in the spring and uh, when the snow melts. Uh, it's so wonderful to have these seasonal changes. Yes, it is. And so uh, we're very, we're very lucky. Uh, we, I mean, Indiana, particularly southern Indiana, Indianapolis itself is not located on a, any major water no. uh, way of any sort. And so the White River, I suppose, is it. And I guess so. Um, now, you were in charge of all of the different campuses. Yes. That is mind-boggling to me. You had to worry about not only the buildings, but the space, the landscaping. Yes, It was wonderful. Every community where Indiana University is located is different. I loved working in Gary. The meaning of our campus in Gary is so important to be right there at the corner of 35th and Broadway in Gary, Indiana. It is so important that we be there, and our mission there is so important. And our landscaping is important. And our landscaping is important, too. And in South Bend, we basically bought part of that campus from the Associates Finance Company and and melded it with uh, one or two of the original buildings, Northside Hall there. And it's a beautiful campus Mm. that runs down to the St. Joe River from Mishawaka Avenue. Kokomo is a a pretty little campus. IU East in Richmond, 228 acres of rolling land Mm. that's well done. And and, of course, I really like uh, our campus down in New Albany. Southeast. IU Southeast. Mm. Sits down below Floyd's Knobs, and it just has such a nice place about it. So uh, I enjoyed that very much, enjoyed every community, and every community was so grateful to have Indiana University inside its city limits. And it was, almost like a centerpiece it was. in its own way. It was. I mean, this campus is like a centerpiece for Bloomington. Yes. It's something that draws visitors. It's it's something that everyone in the community is proud of. Yep. And that, I think, is such a wonderful uh, legacy, to mention your word from the yeah. title of your book, that the university has provided for everyone in the whole region. Yeah. And, and that's and, so all through the state. And we can't forget IUPUI, which uh, in the early 1970s was basically just the medical center with the law school and the dental school mm. there. It and was very, very uh, ordinary. Yes, it Very was. ordinary. And as I said, every building material known to man was mm. hanging someplace on that small little campus. And Ed Barnes, who was our master architect at the time, came in and, and gave us a very cohesive plan to follow at IUPUI. And 
And I think it shows today what mm. good planning can do because as we expanded down to the White River south of Michigan to incorporate New York and on south, it just became quite a different campus. Mm. And today is more than 30,000 students. Campus. Wonderful. It is. And it's a credit to you. You've provided a lot of continuity. How many years have you worked for Indiana Un- or did you work for Indiana <laughs> University? It's past tense. 43 years. It 43 was 43 years. wonderful years. And you started out giving the people coffee and you ended up as vice president. <laughs> That's a pretty good description. <laughs> <laughs> well, how many years were you actually at the helm? The 20, person 25 years 25 as vice president, years. but at the helm, 30 years. Well, that's a long time, and that also is a credit to you because you maintained a certain continuity in terms of your good taste and your attempts to keep the integrity of the campus in the forefront. Well, I had a lot of wonderful help. Many of our listeners will remember Ray Cassati, who was the university architect for over 50 years. Uh, Herman brought him here in 1948. And then he came back in 1950. I worked for James Associates in Indianapolis, but he was our university architect for 50 years. And he was, you know, he didn't seek a lot of publicity, didn't, or notoriety, but he was a quiet, sound voice for mm. engaging with our master planners. Mm. And, and we had good master planners. Uh, Herman, of course, used Eggers and Higgins of New York for much of the time that he was president. And then we used Edward Larrabee Barnes, and then John Bell came in, and now the Smith Group is doing a wonderful job. Where are they uh, from? It's a blended firm out of Washington, D.C., and they and then they uh, they joined with Johnson Johnson and Roy out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Johnson Johnson and Roy was a major master planner, campus mm. master planner. And um, the Smith Group was an architectural firm, so they brought those mm-hmm. two groups together, and uh, and it made and a very huge powerful. Difference. Yeah, that wide-reaching view benefited the local campus so much. The fact that so many people, when I hear you talk and when I read your book, so many people that were in charge were willing to go outside to look for real talent to make this a really spectacular campus. And that was very ambitious of them. It was ambitious, and it was also a bit of good fortune, too. There are some states where a state agency, and Indiana University and Purdue and other universities were all state agencies Mm. at, at the heart. There are states in our country where all state agencies must only employ architects who are registered and home-based in that state. My goodness, that would have really and, been uh, unfortunate and, if we'd had to do that. There would have been no IM Pay working on the Bloomington campus, exactly. no, no Ed Barnes. The right thing to do was to not force marriages, but to create partnerships between the major uh, New York firms and, and international firms and the local Indiana firms, and that's mm-hmm. what we did. We tried to put them together so that there was a benefit to all. Mm, uh, A mix of the local and the uh, global. Right. And it's a credit to everyone that that kind of vision was nurtured across the years. Yes. And that someone didn't at some point say, we've got to cut costs. We're so fortunate because Mm. it's the easy thing to do. I've seen campuses and I've consulted at campuses where the president sort of to make a point 
uh, ordered that the grass no longer be cut so that people would see that they needed additional funds mm-hmm. from the legislature. Well, that is such a short-sighted strategy in my view. We never had that sort no. of thing at Indiana University. We had great trustees here that helped. I've said this before, how wonderful it was to have the leadership of Dick Stoner, who was the executive vice president of Cummins Engine Company and and did a lot of the legwork for J. Irwin Miller in Columbus, mm. making Columbus the special architectural Well, we were lucky to have him with his Dick vision. Stoner was mm. here for uh, almost 20 years and giving us his, the benefit of his view of the world and how lucky we were, how lucky I was to be able to experience that. Well, these collaborations were so critical to the success of the development of the campus. But a lot of it was, too, I suppose, the fact that the people that worked here were open to outside influences in a way that some universities aren't. I think this has always been a collaborative campus. I think it has. And I think a lot of that, you know, that, too, goes back to Herman, who decided to build a great faculty here. And he did that by going out and finding the best people all over the United States. When he wanted a first-rate music school, he went to Texas. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he wanted whatever it was, we went wherever we had to go. And yet he was born in Indiana. What gave him that vision, I wonder? How was that inculcated in that little boy from a small town in Indiana? Isn't that true? And uh, just like William O'Brien, O'Brien was born here in Bloomington. Herman, of course, up in Jamestown and Boone County, and yet he and had... And Michael was born in Australia. And Michael was born in Australia. And he's continuing the tradition and building upon it. Yes, he so is. So we have been so fortunate with the leadership. Yeah, we have. We've been very fortunate. And don't forget the good work. We didn't mention Tom Ehrlich, who had a good eye and a strong interest, and Miles Brand, too. They Miles said, I to me at least, he said, I don't know a lot about it, but I want you to keep up what has been going on around here and tell me what you need. Well, that's uh, a nice thing to be told. And so, wow. Yes. uh, You know, it doesn't get any better than that. Well, choosing good people and then helping them achieve the goals that they set is a hallmark of leadership. Absolutely. Well, Terry, I think we're lucky that the campus has had you for such a long time. You're very kind. And that you wrote this wonderful book, which I'm sure is going to help so many people understand a lot of the nuances about how the campus evolved. Uh, it's such an interesting story, and you've brought it to life. And I think that that's a wonderful contribution. But most of all, I think your dedication to IU and the fact that you had this perfect taste and you knew how to meld history with the realities of the day over a long period of time. We were lucky to have you. And thank you. I was lucky to talk to you today. Well, I was lucky. Moya, I've been so fortunate to have you as a friend for a, a, a long time. I, you and I laughed together about the day that the Forsythias were almost lost on the campus. <laughs> I and remember. You called my office, and we were able to save them. From, <laughs> you came running from down some... and stopped the men from chopping back the Forsythia <laughs> at the critical moment. <laughs> and we've been buddies ever since. But... Uh, But it's faculty like you that want in an environment that inspire good work. And so what a pleasure it was to be a partner in trying to make that happen. Thank you. Terry Claypax, 
Vice President Emeritus of Indiana University, and author of the book Indiana University Bloomington, America's Legacy Campus. Terry spoke with Moya Andrews, Professor Emeritus of Speech and Hearing Sciences at IU, and host of WFIU's Focus on Flowers. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. Next, Moya speaks with another steward of historical landscapes, Anthony Jocelyn. He works as ground supervisor and historic restorer at the T.C. Steele State Historic Site, where he's more than just a groundskeeper. A lot of what Jocelyn does makes him more like a horticultural detective solving some of the buried mysteries of Selma Steele's historic gardens. Welcome, Anthony, and tell us a little bit more about what you do at T.C. Steele. I work at T.C. Steele as the grounds supervisor at the site. I'm in charge of upkeep of not only the buildings, but we have over 211 acres at our property. And I am in charge of maintaining the buildings, the gardens, the trail system, as well as overseeing the volunteer activities at our site. Do you have a lot of volunteers that help in the garden at the site? At certain times of the year, we do have many volunteers. Uh, We just had a group from Knightstown come down. A bunch of young men from a cadet program up there came down and helped us with some trail maintenance a couple weekends ago. Talking about trails... I was wondering, when they began to restore the garden at the T.C. Steele Memorial, was the layout exactly the way it was when Mrs. Steele died, or had it sort of gone to ruin a little bit? There are several gardens at the T.C. Steele State Historic Site. The particular restoration that is fairly complete at this point that I've been working on for the past several years is, in modern times, it's called the Formal Garden. And back in the 1980s, the formal garden was actually under about six inches of turf. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It um, had completely disappeared. Almost completely. There was still one jar that remained at the entrance to the formal garden. A lot of daffodils would come up along the front of the formal garden. A couple old ewes. There still is one left, one remaining ewe Mm. from her day that is still there. So there were some aspects of the garden that were there, but for the most part, the formal garden was not to be seen. It was underground. So back in the 80s, they took some metal rods and they would go around and poke in the ground, find the old stone walkways, and they uncovered it. Historically, we don't know exactly what was in the formal garden. We do have a painting from, I think, 1908 where... It shows Selma and her sister. Selma's the second wife of Mr. Steele, who on their wedding day moved up to the modern T.C. Steele State Historic Site. So back in 1907, he and his new bride moved up there, started their life together. I've heard stories of how it was a muddy hill and she had to walk up in her good shoes. Yeah, they took a horse-drawn wagon The road was so muddy and rutted that they would have to get off and walk halfway up the hill because the the horse couldn't make it, dragging them. Oh, my goodness. How many hours did it take to come in those days from Indianapolis, I wonder? I bet it was a number of hours. 
It was, I think, a two-day travel. A two-day yeah. drive. Yeah, they would take a train from Indianapolis to Helmsburg, which is in Brown County, the last stop back in the day. And then from Helmsburg, they would, I believe, stay the night, and then they would, in the morning, take a horse-drawn buggy the rest of the way. So oh, it was my goodness. two-day journey. Back and in- she was a city girl, wasn't she? She, she worked in Indianapolis— before she married him. Correct. She worked at the uh, Heron School of Art. Yes, so she must have got a tremendous shock when she had to walk through the mud up that hill. I would imagine, yes. (laughs) Living in the country as they lived for the next several years uh, must have been quite interesting. In fact, in her diaries that she maintained, and a lot of those notes are now in several books, including The House of the Singing Winds, she describes that in quite vivid detail about how she moved up to the... It was called Bracken Hill back in the oh, day. Yeah, Bracken that's Hill. interesting. It was now an old abandoned farm. Oh, it was an actual farm. And well, he, it, he they it. tried to farm uh, before Mr. Steele moved in, but they realized that it was not fertile. It was up in the rocky hills of Brown County. So the farmers must have given up and moved on. And by the time they moved in, it was a lot of brambles, a wild space, you could say. And so she set about doing these gardens, and the first thing probably was this formal garden that she laid out. Actually, the first gardens she did were close to the building site of the house. She threw out some seed around the slope of the house, and they all washed away. (laughs) Was she a novice gardener? Did she learn gardening by gardening at that site? Do you know from the diaries? I don't know what her garden experience was before she moved up to the site, but I can say that the seeds that she planted, she found them growing down the hill later on. And she also did a lot of uh, research and used a lot of field guides. She would have Mm -hmm. uh, publications sent to her home in order to better understand how to grow plants and and garden, vegetable garden. So she did vegetables, too. She did, yes. So when you're a restorer of gardens, you're a bit like a detective. Yeah. You have to try to guess what plants she would have had access to. Correct. Luckily, uh, Selma kept a scrapbook. So she kept all these old 1919 house and gardens magazines, and she would cut out little things and put in a scrapbook. So we have... uh, Xerox copies of those notes that she kept. I believe the State Museum keeps the originals up there. I got to go through and look at all the things she had cut out. And it wasn't just plant things that she would keep. She would keep listings of refrigerators or stoves or fashion or cars. She kept lots of things in her scrapbook. But mainly she did keep a lot of notes about plants and flowers and things like that. So based on that... I got to go through and then, based on the list that she had accumulated, go through and try to rediscover some plants that she might have used. Obviously, we don't have a grocery list of basically everything she did. Through her scrapbook, through oral history, we kind of can determine what she might have had and mm-hmm. and try to grow things based off of that. Uh, unfortunately, what I did find was from her scrapbook, I realized pretty quickly that probably seven out of ten of the plants that I try to rediscover are no longer alive. They're extinct now, these varieties of plants. Oh, and they're not available in the trade. 
no longer commercially available. That's mm. right. So most of the plants that I have found picked up through either boutique nurseries, specialty nurseries that sell heirlooms, or specialize in certain rock garden plants, this kind of thing. So it's been a treasure hunt, you could say, yes. trying to find plants. And that fascinating, would... I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting to find some of these plants. For example, one plant that she did have in her scrapbook was a, a rare daffodil called Madame de Graff. And trying to rediscover that flower, I found that it was once extinct, or thought to be extinct, and then rediscovered, uh, although still very rare, last commercially offered, I think, in 2011. And this past year, I was able to track down the gentleman who had those. He said he had like eight of them, and he gave me five. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> so, that was like a bonanza for you. Right. So there's a lot of things like that in our formal garden that are very rare. And while I can't reproduce what Selma had grown in there particularly, what I do try to do is showcase heirloom varieties of perennials from her time and also that to serve as a sanctuary for those heirloom varieties for future generations. So in addition then to the formal garden, what are the other garden spaces that you're working on? There are several gardens on the site. Selma seemed to be interested in different styles of gardens. So there's a little pond area with an upper and lower pond we've been working on for the last couple years, but it's still under restoration currently. Uh, there's also a rock garden in front of the large studio, which houses uh, Mr. Steele's original paintings. An old orchard that is not currently there. <laughs> We're trying to restore what Selma had. She had some peach orchards, as well as some other fruit trees. Difficult because, you know, in Selma's time, Deer were extinct yes. there on the hill. And now so there are now, many deer on the yes. hill. Yes. Part of a challenge is trying to grow things with that in mind. So iris would be a good thing to grow. Do you have any iris? Yes. In fact, we were just recently designated a Historic Iris Preservation Society Public Garden. Oh, what an so, honor. Yeah. So uh, we have probably 100 or more varieties of heirloom iris mostly bearded iris, but also Siberian and other types as well. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I remember visiting and going into the barn and seeing T.C. Steele's paintings and being captivated with the one Selma in the garden because yeah. it does evoke the whole spirit of her passion for gardening. Selma was the driving force behind the gardens and their design. Probably one of the most popular paintings of Mr. Steele is Selma in the Garden. Oh, uh, I'm glad because it is a beautiful painting. Yeah, she's there at the south side of the house weeding the garden, and you can see behind her a tall blue delphinium in the back. Has her big bonnet on. Yes. Yeah. Did she do all of this on her own? She was right out there in the middle of nowhere. Did she dig the beds and do all the heavy work as well as the planting? I know that she had hired hands. She hired uh, local men to help her with the hard labor. And sometimes the men would grumble and say that, well, this isn't really man's work because they're more used to Brown County farmer-type duties. And they didn't like planting flowers. Right. So she had explained to these men that where they would grow vegetables and whatnot to help pay for their lifestyles— 
her husband painted the flowers that she would plant, and those paintings would help pay for her lifestyle. <laughs> that was a wonderful explanation for her to give them. That I bet that made sense to them. It must have, because uh, her gardens were quite famous, and even back in her time, people would come from all around to see the bloom of the daffodils, peonies, and iris. And it's still a magnet today. Do you get people from out of state as well as different parts of the state? Yeah, we have a lot of out-of-state visitors come who uh, either enjoy plein air painting or know of Steele's works. We do house a large collection of his original artworks in the large studio as well as in the House of the Singing Winds. The House of the Singing Winds also contains all original artifacts, including their original beds, their samovar. Their furniture, their, all their furniture. Yes. And that, was, that house was there when they went there to live. They didn't no. build it, did they? T.C. Steele had the house built. Oh, so it was built to his specifications. That's right. That's right. Now, the House of the Singing Winds, was that their name? Did they name it that? Yeah. The Steeles named the house the House of the Singing Winds because at one time it was encircled by a porch. You know, back in the day before air conditioning, it would get very hot in the summer in the house. So Quite often people would sleep on their porches and then get the cool breeze. I remember hearing about sleeping porches. Right. The porches were screened in, and when the wind would come up the hill, it would hit the screens and would create a sound of that they likened to singing. So they called it the House of the Singing Winds. And how long did they live there together before he died? As I mentioned, they moved to the property in 1907. However, they only lived there seasonally at first. Ultimately, they did move in full-time, I think, by 1911, and Mr. Steele died in 1926. So they were there 25 years together, full-time. Yeah, Selma died in 1945. Now, you had told me that her sister lived with her after her husband died. Was that for a very long period? Yeah, I think after T.C. died that Selma's sister, Edith, moved in and uh, lived there with Selma, I think Edith lived there after Selma's death, and she lived at the property into the 50s. Mm, and so, then it was given to the state in the will? Yeah, actually, the Selma willed the house and the property to the state on her death with the stipulation that her sister could continue living there until she passed as well. I bet by then they had pretty much run out of money. I know that Selma and Edith struggled. Um, they sold vegetables. They sold paintings. They rented out some of the little bungalows on the property in order to make ends meet. They also gave tours of the art studio. I'm not sure how much they charged, a nickel, a quarter, something, to take mm. a tour of the uh, the house and the paintings. When you think how much his paintings sell for today, mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems sad to think that she had to struggle so much in her old age. That time, there were not pensions and things, though he did work for a little while for IU, I believe. I think he was friendly with Herman Wells. Yeah, I think William Lowe Bryan was the... Was uh, the president president. in the beginning. Yeah. But then towards the end, I think Selma used to correspond with, or isn't there a letter? It was William Lowe Bryan that she corresponded with. Oh, that was William Lowe Bryan. Well, I I know both William Lowe Bryan and Charlotte Bryan were very instrumental in developing the campus gardens. So they would have had an affinity, I'm sure, because they were all interested in gardens. 
gardens are by nature evolutionary. <laughs> they're always changing. They're always adapting. One nice aspect of the restoration that you might be interested in is when we were doing the restoration, I came across in some notes about how these jars used to sit at the front of the garden. Mm. But in the restoration that I was working on, nobody had ever mentioned that. So I asked my supervisor, Andrea, oh, do you know anything about this? And she goes, oh, yes. Uh, back in the day, the two jars sat at the entrance of this garden. She pointed out, here's one of them, which sits in a different location now. The other one broke over the years. What were they made of? They were clay jars uh, with a ceramic or a glazed ring around the upper neck. They don't know where the She didn't know anything them. about them except that Selma had two of these and they sat down in the formal garden and likely they were carried olive oil in them at one point or something like that. So I started doing a little research and I discovered that they're called biot jars. Hmm. They're from a certain town or village in France that makes these jars. So I went about, well, this is an important architectural feature of this garden. You know, it's important if we're going to restore it, we should restore this feature as well. So looked into trying to restore this feature of the jars. Well, nobody sells these jars anymore. But after several months of looking, I did find them. Well, first off, I did find the original jars, but they're thousands of dollars each and they're antique and it didn't mm. make sense to do that. But I found a company that actually did reproduce jars very, very similar to the ones that oh. Selma had. So A company here in the United States? Yes. I got a hold of the company and they said, well, we did sell those, but unfortunately it's, a, it's an old model. We don't sell those anymore. We're sorry. We have one. I'm like, well, we need a pair to go in the front of the garden. And I said, is there any way you could come up with uh, some more jars? And they said, no, we're sorry. We, we're not making those anymore. So I kept bugging them and bugging them. I said, look, where do you get these jars? They go, we get them in France, and they're shipped overseas. And, you know, I said, is there any way you can contact the company in France who manufactures these jars, beg them for me, for my sake, to see if they would reproduce two of these for our site? They're like, ah. Oh. Okay, so, <laughs> so after all my harassment, they finally got back with me and said, you know, they're going to do it. They're going to reproduce these oh, two jars. Oh, wonderful. And it turns out that where they, the modern versions of these were made was in the same neighborhood as the 100-year-old jars that, we, that oh, were made. Oh, my goodness. All the, back so then. they're coming yeah. from the same place, so, same area. Long story shorter, they, they were shipped by ship, and it took about a year but we do have them now, and they sit at the entrance of our garden as well, they we did. We must all come and visit, if <laughs> only to see the jars, right? but also mm -hmm. to see all of the wonderful work that you and the others at the site have done to recreate the atmosphere that would have existed when Selma was working in her garden. What a, a wonderful job you have. You have all the joys of enjoying the site, but also the fun of trying to reconstruct the past and make it accessible for future generations. Selma said that this is a sanctuary for future generations, which is exactly why she left it to the state, because she wanted future generations to enjoy her husband's artworks, as well as the flowers and the wildflowers and the trails. She was a very modern woman. She was a conservator of 
of wildflowers. She she was an early preservationist and very ahead of her time. She certainly was a courageous woman to take on that completely new life after having been a city girl. And, you know, most gardeners always say that gardens don't continue after the death of the gardener. But what is so inspiring about your story and about the work you're doing is that this garden is continuing very nicely and going to continue, hopefully, for a long, long time, even though Selma is now only there in spirit. Yeah, we, we're fortunate that we do still have some of the original garden. For example, as you mentioned earlier, we have original peonies that were in the formal garden that we dug out when the accessible walkways were put in. We divided them, and a year later we put them back where they were. We also have ancient PG hydrangeas along the drive that you can tell are over 100 years old, which I've been cloning. <laughs> oh, that's good. So yeah. you can get more. Yes. So that if anything happens to the old ones. Yeah, they're on their way out, so we're, we're doing our best to keep what we can. We also have historic trees that we're trying to preserve on the property that Mr. Steele painted. And there's a, an old wisteria on a pergola that's quite famous there at his property that is still there. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us today because you have made me feel as though I want to jump in my car, run down and see all of these things that you've described so vividly. Thank you for sharing this with us because this is truly a wonderful asset for this region and not only attracts people from here, but as you said, from very far afield. So you are the trustee of something that is very precious for this part of the state. So thank you. Thank you, Moya. I, I agree. I think it's a crown jewel of our state historic site system, and I hope that we see more people coming to visit us. Thanks again. Thank you. Anthony Jocelyn, ground supervisor at the T.C. Steele Historic Site, just up the hill from Belmont in Brown County. He spoke with Moya Andrews, host of WFIU's Focus on Flowers. For more information about the site and Selma Steele's gardens, visit tcsteele.org. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.